like to start off with looking at Paul's words in Philippians chapter 3. And I know we're in the series talking about David, but we're going to start with, with what Paul tells us. And Paul, Paul is basically saying, hey, I want to live this life that God's called me to. I, I want to be a man after God's own heart, basically is what he's saying. And this is what he writes. He says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So he's saying, hey, I, I want to be this man of God. Uh, that's my ultimate goal. I'm not there yet, but I'm pressing on. I, I want to obtain that. Then he says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. The reason we've been studying David, and the reason David is such a popular character, is he's, he's this guy that we look at and go, he is a man after God's own heart. He's this, this, this character that, man, we all look up to. We want to be like David, right? He's a man after God's own heart. But it doesn't mean that life's easy. We know that. And it doesn't mean that David was perfect, and we're really going to learn that today. But today we learn from David in a very negative way. We learn what not to do from David. If you want to be a man after God's own heart, well, today let's not do what David did. And basically what we learn from David today is that we need to stay focused. We need to be aware of the sin around us, and we need to keep moving forward. Now, I want to try the best I can, and I know if you've been here even a couple times, you probably know that I like football. And so... Oh, I trained with these two, trained, and it took that long to get my football, but it was a good throw. It was a good throw. Thank you. <laughs> it was going to be so much better, but anyway, you know that I like football, and, and so what, what I want to do today is tell you my view of how being a quarterback in football is like our lives. Now you're going, come on, Chris. But I'm telling you, okay, so I was a quarterback from as little, well, I was little, and I still am little, but from when I was really little, I was a quarterback all the way up through college, I was a quarterback. And I remember I wanted to be a quarterback because I'd go in the backyard with my, with my friends, and I could throw the ball pretty well, and I could, I could make good passes, I could see the open receivers, but then I started actually playing organized football, and I realized that there was an issue here. All these people were in the way. And they were all taller than me. And it really annoyed me. And I, I can't tell you how many times I hit people in the back of the head with the ball because they got in the way. Which my dad, who was my coach, later said, no, 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 that's your fault. <laughs> and so my, my dad and other coaches I had throughout the years would, would tell me, as you drop back to throw a football, because you that don't know, football is a very simple sport. The, the quarterback, now there's plays that you run, but on passing plays, you drop back and you try to find one of your own men on your team, same color jersey, and throw them the football. Hopefully they catch it and they score a touchdown. Very simple, right? That's, that's what you're trying to do. The only problem is there's a lot of distractions there. And my dad and other coaches would say, hey, when you drop back in that in the, in the pocket with the ball, you've got to be focused on this one area of the field to see the open receivers. 
Now, that sounds pretty simple, right? But now as a quarterback, when you walk up to the line and everyone's down in their position, I can still see at that point, they're down. First thing that I had to do is I had to look at the defense. And I had to look at these 11 guys that were trying to kill me. And I had to say, okay, this is where they're at. This is probably where my open receiver is going to be. So you have to start there. And then you had to know where all your receivers were going to be. And then you'd snap the football. And when you snap the football, you've got five to six very large men trying to kill you, hit you, smash you, whatever. And you're dropping back and all this is happening around you. And if you've never worn pads, shoulder pads, when you run, they bounce and they're really loud. And the helmet's really tight and it kind of restricts your vision. So you've got all these things happening while you're supposed to be focused on throwing it to the right person. And now I had a guy in college I won't, well, I'll just say his name was Tim. I wasn't going to mention his name, but I'll just call him out. Tim was 6'9", 300 pounds. And you think, what a lineman, right? Well, Tim couldn't block my grandmother, unfortunately. And, and Tim, <laughs> Tim perfected what, what we called the lookout block. And so what Tim would do is he'd miss his block, and then he would yell at me, look out, he's coming. <laughs> and we'd get back to the huddle after I got sacked, and he'd go, did you hear me? I yelled, look out. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate that. But, but what the whole focus here was that you're trying to keep your focus on what you're supposed to do while all this stuff's happening around. You've got to keep moving so you don't get sacked, and you've got to be aware of everyone around you. When I, I say all that, I go, can you catch it? <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. She stole the show. <laughs> and, and when I say football is like life, that's what I'm saying. You, you, in life, maybe it's not quite as distracting. We don't have big, large men trying to smash us all day long. Maybe we do. I don't know. You might live a different life than me. But, but, but we do have things happening. We do have to stay focused on our task. If we want to be men and women of God, right? If we want to be who God created us to be, we have to stay focused. And we have to be aware of the sin and the dangers that take away from that. And we've got to always be moving forward, growing in that relationship, growing to become who God called us to be. And David, he was a warrior, right? Kind of like a football player, except they're literally trying to kill you. And David was a really good warrior. In fact, that's if you really look at David... Really, you go, man, that's who God made him to be. The guy's a warrior, and, and he's conquering all the enemies, and he's growing Israel into this great nation. In fact, I want to read you the end of 2 Samuel chapter 10. And we can see how good David is doing. It says, the Arameans formed their battle lines to meet David and fought against, against him, but they fled before Israel. And David killed 700 of their charioteers, 40,000 of their foot soldiers. He also struck down Shabak, the commander of their army, and he died there. And when all the kings who were vassals of the Hadadizer, Hedaz, whatever it is, saw that they had been routed by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. But basically what's happening is David is really good at being a warrior and commanding his armies. They are beating everybody. They, Israel is very powerful at this time. So that's who David is. That's who God created him to be. And then we roll into chapter 11 in 2 Samuel 11.1. 1, this is what we read. In the spring, 
At the time the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Amorites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. It doesn't sound like a big deal, but David was created to be a warrior. That's who he was. He was the warrior king. And what's he doing? He's at home. He stayed behind. He sent his troops out, even though he's the leader of them, and he's going to stay at home for a while. I get it. You get tired. You get worn out. You know, the stresses of it all. And so he stays behind, which is fine to rest from time to time. But the problem is when you lose focus, as David does here, that's the beginning of other things happening. And so the thing is, is God created him to be a warrior. That's who he was. And God's created us, and we lose track of who he created us to be. Well, then all of a sudden we start to put our defenses down. And David here, the, they're his uh, army's out fighting and he's sitting on his rooftop sunbathing or doing whatever he's doing, taking naps. I mean, he's really lost focus at this point. And so in 2 Samuel 11, 2 through 5, it says, late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was. And he, told her this is, or, and he told her, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Oops, we got ourselves in a little pickle here now. And so David, he put his defenses down, didn't he? He's at home. He's kind of lost focus, and now he's looking around and saying, going, oh, I shouldn't be looking at that guy's wife. He's like, hmm, who's that? And, and I want to point out here, when the guy that he sent to go find out who Bathsheba was, he came back. He wasn't just telling David who she was. He was giving David a warning. He said, she is Bathsheba, David, the, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. In other words, David, that's Bathsheba his wife, not your wife. You should probably stay away, but David doesn't listen immediately, sends for her, and we know what happens there. And so when we lose our focus, quite often we lose our ability to be aware of the dangers around us, to be aware of the sin. And, and so the interesting thing here is Uriah the Hittite, we find out later in, in Samuel chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 23, that he wasn't just a random soldier in David's army. He was one of his top 30 fighting men. Uriah the Hittite was one of his best. I mean, he was one of the ones, he had these 30 men that were most loyal to him, that, that were absolutely, they would do anything David said, and that's Uriah the Hittite, who David took his wife. And so here you have Uriah, and David does this to him, and David's going, man, I've got myself in a little bit of situation here, but I am the king. And I do have some power. And so David tries to sweep things under the carpet. And he, he, first of all, he calls Joab or he sends a message to Joab. They didn't have phones back then. Sends a message to Joab and says, hey, can you send Uriah home? I want to I I see him and talk to him. He's such a good guy. Send him home. So Uriah 
comes to David's palace, and David brings him in, feeds him a big meal, and tells him how great he is. And then he says, hey, David, why don't you go home tonight and sleep with your wife? You know, you get it. He's trying to cover up because she's pregnant with his baby, and he's hoping maybe that, well, then he doesn't, he has an excuse, right? Now it's all gone. The problem was Uriah, one of his top fighting men, he was loyal to David, and he refused to go home. He said, I can't go home, David. The men are out fighting. Now, this is what David should have been saying, but instead it's Uriah going, your men are out fighting. I need to go back to battle. And David goes, no, 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 go home. Go home. Please go home. I need to fix this problem. And so he sends him. Uriah goes out, sleeps on the doormat all night, refuses to go home. Next morning, they come and they say, David, hey, the guy didn't go home. He's still out there. And David's like, ah, that stupid guy. So then he thinks, okay, let's think of something else. So he brings Uriah in and goes, okay, Uriah, you're not going to go home. You're going to go back to battle. Here's a message. Why don't you take this message to Joab? And so in the message he carries to Joab, he, David tells Joab, put Uriah on the front lines, go into battle, and then pull back Everyone but Uriah. Don't give him that message so that he dies in battle. It's exactly what happened. That's what transpired. David had Uriah basically killed. And you look at this, and David just manipulated the whole situation. He lost focus. He let down his guard. It happened. And now he sweeps it all under the carpet and goes, okay, that's over with. All my problems are done. Now, it says here, after David's desire wins out in 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven, it says, and she, Bathsheba, becomes one of his wives. Then she gives birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Really? What'd he do? I mean, he only broke half of the Ten Commandments in just one situation, right? I mean, he's, but he doesn't seem bothered by it. He's kind of sweeping it under the carpet. He's just going about business like always. And so things settle down. David's continuing on with his life. And then God sends Nathan, the prophet Nathan, who followed Samuel. And here comes Nathan. Nathan knocks on David's door and he comes to confront him. But he does it with this great story. And so Nathan comes in and he says, okay, David, let me tell you a story. There's these two men in this town. There's this really rich man. And the rich man, he has thousands of sheep thousands of cattle. He's got this big, beautiful home with servants, and he's got everything. There's another man in the town. He's a poor man, and he's got a family, and he's got one sheep. And this sheep, he loves so much that they made the sheep pet their pet, and they, they, they love it. They bring it to their house, must sleep in their bed with it, or they have a sheep bed for it at the end of the bed. And, and they love this sheep. I mean, this is their baby, right? And, and that's that's all they have. And so the story goes on and a traveler comes through the town. And the traveler sees the rich man's house. And he goes to the rich man's house and knocks on the door and goes, I need a place to stay tonight. Well, in those days, if you brought in a traveler, you also fed him a great big meal. And so the rich man brings the traveler in. He goes out and he looks at all his sheep, looks at all his cattle. And he goes, I don't want to waste these on this guy. So he sends his servant to the poor man's house to take their pet sheep to bring back, and they slaughter the pet sheep and feed it to the traveler. Now David hears this story, and he is irate at the rich man. I mean, he is absolutely furious with him. 
And so this is what it says. David burned with anger against the man. And he said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Now what David didn't realize that he was giving himself the death sentence. He was saying that guy needs to die. But really Nathan was talking about David and David was too blind to even see it. He had lost focus so much he didn't realize that it was him. Because David actually had lots of wives. And he was up on his rooftop that day. He could have called any of his wives to come on up. But instead he sees the one thing that he didn't have. And that was Uriah's wife, his only wife, the wife that he loved and cherished. And what did David do? David took her. And David had every right to be mad at the rich man, right? Well, finally, Nathan, who says, David, what you're not getting here is you are the man. It says, then Nathan said, David, you are the man. And it wasn't like, David, you're the man. Okay, it wasn't in a positive way. <laughs> it was, David, you are the guy, the bad one, the one that did this. You're the rich man that stole the sheep. You're the one that you just gave the death penalty to. And then God, through Nathan, says this to David. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little... I'd have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You see, God's telling David, I'd given you everything. And yet you take what wasn't yours. And basically, David lost focus. He let down his guard. He wasn't aware of the sin around him. He jumped right into the middle of it, and then he didn't even care. He was just going about life. And, and, and it's interesting to me that so often we do that. Oh, I, I did that, but ah, we're just going to go on with life. Basically, he quit moving forward. He quit growing in that relationship. He quit becoming who God had created him to be. And he became this guy that manipulated situations and tried to cover things up. And it took Nathan showing up to go, hey, you quit fighting. You quit trying. You quit growing. You see... God made us just like he made David in a certain way. He made David to be a man after his own heart. He created you and I to be men and women after his heart. He gave us a purpose. And when we quit pursuing that purpose, we quit moving forward. We quit growing. You see, David lost focus to the point that doing wrong was just, hmm, it was just doing wrong. It's interesting, you, these sins are just something, we've all experienced it. We've all lost focus. We've all dropped the guard, right? We've all jumped right into the middle of sin. We've all gone, eh, I'll brush that under the carpet. We've all done it because it's an age-old problem. It started way back when. If you go to Genesis chapter 3, it's the very same sin that David jumped into. In Genesis chapter 3, you got Eve, you got Adam, and you got a serpent. And The serpent was, well, we call him Satan. And the name Satan means accuser or adversary. And accuser means he's accusing you, he's accusing others. Sometimes even through you, he causes you to accuse people. But he's also the adversary, which means he is not for you. 
He's not on your team. He's not on your side. He does not want you to be who God created you to be. And so he's going to do everything he can to derail you. And so in Genesis chapter 3, we've got Eve, we've got the serpent, and we've got Adam. But God's not in the picture, which I find quite interesting that you don't see very often the accuser show up to in a situation where you are present with God. <laughs> it, it, he seemed to be separated at that point. And, and, and so here the serpent shows up in verses 1 through 4. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, the first thing he does is he accuses God of something, and he puts some doubt in Eve. Did God really say you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? How mean of God. That's basically what he's accusing God of. And Eve, Eve looks at it, and she's like, well, no, we can eat from any tree. And she says, no, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but... But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. In fact, he said, don't touch it or you'll die. And so Eve all of a sudden has this, this switch of focus, right? Her focus was on, look what God gave me. We have all these trees to eat from. I, I'm just guessing up until that point, she wasn't even worried about the tree in the middle of the garden. She was... She was living life. I mean, they lived in the perfect environment. They had all they could eat. They were doing exactly what God created them to do in the evenings. They walked with God. They had everything. And all of a sudden, the accuser comes along, the adversary. And what does he say? He goes, you're looking at all the stuff you have, but let me show you what you don't have. The middle of the tree. Bathsheba, maybe. It's right here in the middle of the garden. And doesn't it look nice? And she says, well, you know, we can eat from all of them, but yeah, not that one. In fact, he says, we'll die. And so the serpent responds, you will not certainly die. Come on. And the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that you will eat from it. Your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see what he's doing here. He's going, hey, you forgot about the one thing you couldn't do. And now God told you you're going to die? Come on, do you really believe God? Do you see all the doubt that he's putting? This, this guy, he's not for Adam and Eve. He doesn't care if they like the fruit. He just wants them to fail. And so he takes their focus from all they have to the one thing they don't have. And all of a sudden, Eve's looking at the tree going, wow, that fruit looks really good. And for some reason, my stomach is growling right now, and I need some. And so she picks it, and she eats it, and it's good, and she gives it to Adam, and Adam's like, oh, okay, I'll eat it too, and he does. And so here they are. They eat the fruit. And all of a sudden, the first thing they notice is that they're naked. Now, the thing is, they've been naked since they were created. We don't know how much time has transpired, but they've been naked all along. And then all of a sudden they eat this fruit and the first thing they do is they go, this is embarrassing, I'm naked. And I didn't even realize it. So they immediately start trying to cover themselves up. And what they're doing is they're trying to hide who they are. They're embarrassed. All of a sudden they're embarrassed of who they are. Because for the first time since they were created, they are not who God created them to be. 
they did what they weren't supposed to do. The one thing he asked them. And now all of a sudden they're like, I am so embarrassed. And not only are they embarrassed of themselves, they literally hide from the very God that loves them. The, the one that's for them. The one that was against them made them do that. The one that's for them, now they're hiding from God. God has to seek them out. And it's this age-old problem. We all do it. We're going through life, and life seems good. And all of a sudden we go, oh, man, I wish I could do that. I wish I had that. Why don't I have that? Why does everyone else have that? Well, it's not yours. And, and then we start to focus on that. And then our guards go down. And then we quit moving forward. David, Adam, and Eve, they're just like us. They all fall into the same traps that we fall into, right? Go down the same path. What we need to do is stay focused, right? That's the first and foremost thing. We need to be focused on what is right and good. We need to be focused on who God created us to be. And what's interesting about who God created us to be is really who we want to be. If we really break it down, we're going to be living our best life when we live the life that God created us to be. That's who we want to be. And so we have to stay focused on doing what is right and good. Maybe that's as simple as waking up in the morning and just filling yourself with God's word. Maybe it's a verse. Maybe it's two or three. Just filling yourself with that. Staying focused on that. All the bad decisions begin with a lack of urgency to do what is right. Just let that sink in for a little bit. Every bad decision we make begins with our lack of urgency to do what is right. We do what David did and we go, I need a break. I need to relax. And we lose focus. We lose urgency on doing what is right. And then we need to keep our defenses up. We need to keep them strong. We need to be aware of the things that tempt us. We all know our weaknesses, don't we? We tend to put ourselves right in the midst of those weaknesses. We need to keep our guards up. We need to be aware of those things. Don't even entertain temptation. Stay clear of it. Because once you entertain it, it's over at that point. Once David entertained it, it was over. And then we have to keep moving forward. That means we have to keep growing. Remember Paul said, man, I, I haven't got there yet. But man, I am going to keep striving for what is ahead of me. Not what's behind, that's over. Striving for what is ahead. And, and here's the truth. We do not drift into growth and discipline. You don't wake up in the morning and go, oh, I'm just going to just do whatever today. I'll probably get really disciplined in the process. It's not going to happen, right? You, you've got to wake up and go, no, I've got to do these things. I've got to, if I want to grow, I have to know what I'm doing. You don't just casually drift into those things. You, you casually drift into complacency, into just, huh, not caring anymore. If you want to grow, if you want to keep moving forward, you have to do that on purpose. Now, many of us, we find ourselves right where David was, right? Right where Adam and Eve were. It happens all the time. We're out of focus. We're okay when things are wrong. And sometimes we need someone to thump us on the head. And wake us up. Sometimes we need, it happens at church. Sometimes it happens when a friend goes, hey, you can't be doing this. Well, this happened to David with Nathan, right? Nathan shows up, tells him the story, and says, David, you're the man. 
Remember, not positively, you were the dumb man. You were the one that did this. And David responds, I've sinned against the Lord. Doesn't sound like much, but it's this acknowledgement. You're right. That was me. I did do this. And really, that's the beginning. That's where it starts. We're all in this, this journey to become who God created us to be, right? And, and there's times that, man, we mess up, we get off track, we lose focus. But we've got to have that point where we go, okay, God, I, I got off track. I need you to forgive me. And we need to start moving forward again. Several years ago, I heard a story about Billy Graham. You guys know the great evangelist Billy Graham. He's, he's now passed away from a different time. All, all I know of Billy Graham is that he was this great preacher that had these huge revivals and hundreds and thousands of people would come and meet Jesus at his revivals. I mean, he was this, this really a powerful evangelist in so many ways. Uh, but I once read about Billy Graham in a, in a book and in his early ministry, he felt called to be an evangelist. That was his calling. He was passionate about it. But when he first started, he would go from church to church and not many people would show up. He would go to these events and not many people would show up to listen to him. And he started to become really frustrated. And some of his friends, and sometimes friends can be our adversaries without even meaning to, began to say, Billy, maybe this isn't what you should be doing. Could you imagine the world without Billy Graham, right? And you're the friend that's saying, yeah, maybe you shouldn't be doing this, Billy. Maybe you should think about another career. And Billy was pretty sure that he was called to be an evangelist. And then he had these other friends that started talking to him and saying, you know what? One of your problems, Billy, is you're way too harsh about being really careful about the Word of God. You know, you're, you preach it so closely that maybe, maybe you need to loosen things up a little bit. Maybe people will like that more. And, and Billy Graham's listening to this advice, and, and this stuff's starting to affect him. And one night he had, a, he had a meeting the next day, a revival meeting. And he was assuming not many people were going to come. And he's out. He found this, this path in the woods. And he's out walking in the woods. And he's carrying his Bible with him. He's thinking about all these things. Maybe I should just give it up. Maybe, I, maybe they're right. Maybe I shouldn't just be so, so right about God's word. Maybe I need to loosen things up. And as he's walking around, he begins to pray and say, God, speak to me. Just speak to me. Tell me what I am supposed to do. I want to hear from you. And he sat out there for what it seemed like hours, and God never spoke to him. And so often we think we hear these stories that, man, God said this. Billy Graham didn't hear it that night. He said after a while, he opened up his Bible and he laid it in a tree stump close to him. And he just said, God, I believe this. And I believe you called me to do this. In other words, he's saying, this is who you created me to be. And I can't be anything else. And so he made a vow that night to God that he would preach his word and he would continue to do it if one person showed up. The next day he shows up, and all of a sudden a lot of people came to hear him. The very next morning. In fact, so many people came, they couldn't all fit in the place they were meeting, so they extended the revival for another day, and another day, and another day. Instead of one small crowd, they had four nights of massive crowds where thousands of people 
showed up and met Jesus. You know, God didn't say, this is it, Billy. But Billy said, God, I believe in you. And it was the turning point. We've got to have that point where we go, God, I'm just giving it to you. I want to be who you created me to be. And I just want to close with Paul's words in Philippians again. It says, not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you know where we are. You know what we need. And I pray that you would meet us right there. If we need this point of turning and going, I've been wrong. I've been going the wrong direction. Lord, give it to us. Make this be the moment. Refocus. My desire, Lord, is for us, your people, to be exactly who you want us to be, to be men and women after your own heart. I pray that for this church. We just pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being here, and you are dismissed.